Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, that's the, I mean, that's, even where the title comes from, right? Last Tango in Cyberspace, in a sense, is the end of something new. And the new that I'm talking about is the feeling. What we don't realize is that, that, that the world, life, has it feels a particular way based on a lot of subconscious stuff that we don't pay attention to, including the technology we're surrounded by. And, and I'll give you the example mm-hmm. I always like to give, and we sort of started here, is if you are old enough to have watched the internet emerge, there was a, there was a period between like 90, 1993, 94. And I, I, I helped start BuzzNet, which was one of the first online magazines. So I was, I was in San Francisco. I was working on some stuff for this right at the beginning. Um, so I was familiar with it, but in a two year period, you went from like being fairly isolated in the world to being connected to the world. And the mind space, the way the world felt, the opportunities, the possibilities, everything massively expanded and reality felt different. And it had, it didn't feel that way before. And suddenly it felt different. And my point is the way the world feels to us, the way reality actually feels is going to radically change. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Stephen, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, man. It's really good to be with you. Yeah. So uh, you're back here, I think, for the third time, uh, which to me always says a whole hell of a lot about somebody when we have them as a guest multiple times. You have a new book out, uh, Last Tango in Cyberspace, which we will uh, definitely talk about. But before we get into all that, I want to ask you something that I don't think I've asked you before, and that is, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? That is so funny that you just asked me that. I said this to my team Four days ago, I was like, I don't know what it is about writing a novel, but everybody keeps asking me about my parents and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah. Nobody's ever asked me questions about my family or anything else. Um, my father, uh, my so uh, uh, I my my grandparents were essentially Russian immigrants. Uh, so my my parents were for, kind of first generation Americans, and uh, my mom was a teacher. Uh, and my father uh, came out of college as an accountant, and then he moved over into life insurance. And uh, now he's sort of uh, wealth wealth planning, you know, 50 years later or whatever. Um, so my father was yeah. a businessman. And um, 
I, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, my father and I really did not get along from very early age. We're really close now, but we were not close till I was about 25. And we, we had a lot of problems Uh, and a lot my father, I think, you know, he, he just wanted, um, a nor like he was a baseball player. I think he wanted a, a son who played baseball and was interested in business and it would have been just fine. And what he got was just this like weird creative guy who was interested in art and science and action sports. None of the things that he, he wanted in a son. Yeah. Uh, so that was a little bit of a war zone. Uh, my mom was uh, massively creative, always creative her whole life. And I, you know, I always say that the the way my, my, when I was born, my parents were really poor. Um, I think their combined income the year we moved from Chicago to Cleveland, uh, which was I was two or three or something, was two thousand dollars a year. Um, so not there was not a whole lot of money back then. And uh, um, my mom, you know, she was young. She was twenty one, twenty two when she had me. She had no idea how to raise me. She had no idea what she was doing, and so. The way she compensated for her lack of knowledge was by reading to me endlessly. We would go to the library and I would pick out 150 books and we would bring them home. And she, like, she didn't know, she literally had no idea what she was doing. But the only thing she knew, books are good for kids. And I think that's what did it. Yeah. What changed with your dad for you guys to finally get past, um, you know, the sort of tension that you had? And also, you know, being uh, from an immigrant family, uh, what kinds of messages did they give you about careers, particularly because, uh, you know, you mentioned you were poor. And I know that in our last conversation, you talked about the fact that one of the three fail points for most people who are aspiring to be creatives and, and make a career out of being creative was the fact that you do have to endure poverty for some period of time. Yeah, it's, uh, the, I mean, I always say the first impossible that most people achieve, right? When you, when you, in a, in a small I impossible, not capital I impossible, but the first, like, oh my God, I like is as a creative, especially it's how do you get paid for being creative, right? That's the first mountain you always mm-hmm. have to climb. And it is, it is an impossible mountain. It is an incredibly difficult mountain. And everybody's got to climb their own mountain because there's no real roadmap. Um, so that's mm-hmm. tricky. Um, what happened with my father was interesting. So what happened with my father is Michael Jordan happened, believe it or not. So I was a bartender uh, out of college and, and, and through grad school and whatever. And I think this was in the year between college and grad school and the Chicago Bulls, uh, where I, both of us were from Chicago, were in the finals. And I want to say it was the second time the Chicago Bulls were in the finals. Now, I had never even seen a basketball game almost in my entire life, like had zero interest in basketball, but was tending bar at this bar. And the owner decided he was going to wheel in a big screen TV to show the finals. Um, and I had never seen Michael Jordan before. And I had never really seen basketball. But all it took, I watched one game and I went, Whatever the hell is going on? This guy is defying the laws of gravity. I'd never seen anything like it. With my, you know, massive interest in peak performance, you know, it just it caught my attention. And Michael Jordan happened. And what happened was I became a basketball fan, and my father and I had something neutral and not violent to talk about. So we could 
have conversations that didn't end in arguments because every conversation we had had up to that point, be them about politics or what I was going to do with my life or take your pick, my choice and girlfriend, um, usually ended up in a, in a massive argument. So what actually happened was we got a neutral topic that we could talk about. Um, and my father knew more about it. So, you know, I mean, here I was for the very first time in my life calling my dad saying, Hey, basketball, Michael Jordan, tell me about this dude. What's up? And it that we yeah. built it on top of that. So in, in a sense, Michael Jordan saved my relationship with my father. <laughs> well, that's that's amazing. And did the, did the past just sort of get masked by the fact that you know you have this one thing that you could rebuild on? Like, what happens to the all, all the drama from the past? Well. So, I mean, one is I started to grow up and I started to understand how young my father was when he had me and that like the person I was having problems with um, as a dad growing up, you know, was suddenly I was, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, at the, sort of the same, you know what I mean? That the same errors that my father and I started having problems. And I also have, my father's got a bad temper and I have my father's temper. And I've, you know, I've had to learn to really control kind of the anger and the rage and, and the frustration and the way that builds up in me. Um, and I knew he was dealing with the same stuff with less tools and just as much fear mm -hmm. and, you know, all that stuff. So I started to get a little wiser in perspective and I started to realize, hey, wait a minute. First of all, in a lot of this, I was the asshole. And here was a guy just doing everything he possibly could to do his best. And I was making it incredibly difficult. And the, that's the other thing. I was beyond wild as a, as, a, as a kid. I mean, I was a kid that other parents warned their kids not to play with. My sixth grade teacher told me I wouldn't live to see 30. I was, a, I was wild. And, and the kid, the friends I had were even wilder. And, you know, by the time I was in my late 20s, a lot of those people had been killed one way or another and uh -huh. you started or or they were in jail or they were other bad thing happened and you start to see oh wait a minute i you know my father used to say you know little concept little choices add up and it all matters and i like i came to realize he's really really right but it's almost impossible to see that at the time the other thing is i got the hell out of cleveland ohio and you can't i was just a weird punk rock kid in, in Ohio in the, you know, in the seventies, eighties and early nineties. And this is, people don't think about this anymore. And this is something that's actually a lot in last hang on cyberspace, right? Is the fact that the internet and MTV and cable TV, it made it safe to be a weirdo in the suburbs or to be a weirdo, you know, in smaller towns or to be, you know, outside of a handful of urban cities. It was not safe. I was in a fight every day from the time I was 13 or 14 to the time I was 17 or something. I mean, there was a lot just for having weird hair and earrings. Um, so there was getting uh -huh. out of Ohio <laughs> was huge, right? That, that mattered as well. So I, you know, I think it was a lot of those things. And, you know, with the, with, I, you know, immigrant, my parents were Russian Jews basically. So like the big battle, you know, was often over, uh, girlfriends and what religion they were. And I was an, agnostic atheist you know what i mean and i i never understood any of that um and uh it turns out you know, that uh, you know eventually went away um also as well like they got over a lot of though as time passed those kind of 
early prejudices that they sort of came into life with started to evolve also. Mm, wow. Um, what did they, did they encourage certain careers? Like, were there any things they told you you should avoid or, or anything? Oh, like I that? mean, they, my, my mother, we were laughing. Uh, my mother, I mean, both my parents didn't want me to be a writer. I was discouraged actively, violently, um, for being a writer at every, almost every step. Somebody got in my way pretty much every time I tried to take a step forward into this career, probably until I was out of grad school, but I mean, like in crazy ways. And uh, my parents were no different. So it didn't, it, it wasn't that I didn't get encouragement at home. I got encouragement nowhere. I got active discouragement everywhere I went. I, you know, I don't know if they thought I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer because whatever like dreams they had um, for me, you know, they were, I was, a, I was a punk rock. It's really hard to look at your, you know, 16 year old who's got a mohawk and earrings and be like, uh, you know, especially at that era, be like, oh, he's going to grow up to be a surgeon. You know what I mean? Like I sort of shattered those dreams pretty early on, I think before they could really yeah. take root. But I think they just wanted me um, uh, to be happy more than anything else. And just, they knew how damn hard it was to make a living. Um, and it's, yeah, I don't think anything can prepare you for kind of how shockingly difficult it is to make a living unless you're going to work for somebody else. Right. I was never going to, that was never going to happen to me other than being a bartender. I never, I mean, I started working when I was 11 years old and I never really had a boss. Um, I don't do well with uh -huh. bosses with any of those things. So, um, uh, that was, that relate. was challenging. I think that scared them. Well, I, I remember very distinctly one thing that you and I were talking about when I met you at Zero to Dangerous was you said you're always somebody's bitch, even if you're a freelancer or working on your own, which I, that stayed with me. And I thought, yeah, you're right. Even if you're writing a book with a publisher, you're kind of their bitch. No, you I, like because the thing is, man, the because the bigger it, it's re, the biggest transition is the this the first you you usually make your name for as a creative with developing a style right that's first level level two is that you your style gets you known enough that you get hired by bigger names be it whatever industry and then you're then you're really working for somebody else right and they don't want you to be creative they don't want the, the very thing that got you there they want you to do their thing really really well and then when you if you actually yeah. get forth from that one well suddenly you have an audience and that's a totally different uh -huh. thing, right? Um, and, uh, you know, my book is, my novel is a really great example. I've got an incredibly devoted audience and fan base who love me um, and love reading about disruptive technology and love reading about peak performance. But suddenly I read a novel and some of them are really fired up and others are like, what are you doing, man? What the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, like in the spirit of transparency, like I think the books that I related to more were your your big performance books, like Rise and, and Stealing Fire. And I was like, oh, this is a really, really interesting departure. Granted, I like, I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of when you told me what the the book coming after this was, I was like, yeah, honestly, I'm kind of looking forward to that one more uh, because I'm a weirdo who doesn't read a lot of nonfiction. So it was, you know, one of those things. Where it's like, okay, you know what, I want to read this so I can have a conversation with you about it. Uh, but you'll hopefully, I mean, I always, yeah, I want to, yeah. let, let's talk about that for half a second, only because yeah. I think, I think there's something that a lot of the kind of high performance, entrepreneurial minded, 
you know, even cre- even creative minded folks who a lot of your listeners don't read fiction. And the thing about it is it's a mistake. It's a mistake for two reasons. Reason one yeah. is if you're really, really, really going to learn and become a lifelong learner, you have to get comfortable reading things you don't always understand. And uh-huh. fiction writers, fiction readers get that very early on. They're like, oh, there's stuff going on in the plot that might be atmospheric, that might be whatever, or might not be revealed till later, and I'm going to be confused along the way. So they learn to handle a certain level of discomfort. And I think a lot of readers today get to the point where they're like, I'm not quite sure what's going on, and um, they get uncomfortable with it. And that's really, I mean, it's problematic First of all, because uh, for fiction reading, but it's really problematic as you get deeper and deeper into subjects because you're going to be reading uh-huh. over your head a lot. The second thing is yeah. nonfiction is fantastic for facts. It's great for facts. It's really it's, – it, there's no – denser learning available than a nonfiction book and nobody's a bigger fan but what you can what is really hard to get from a nonfiction book that you automatically get from good novels is perspective and that perspective uh-huh. shift and the reason is um with nonfiction your ego never goes away as you read the book your prefrontal cortex is sort of activated you're thinking as you're you know what i mean with uh fiction um stories slip past the ego they literally do like the narrative kind of weaves it way that's how it's so easy to get lost in a movie or in a television show or a good book and what's happening is you're literally sneaking past the ego so the information is sort of getting in at a deeper level and it causes a big shift you get empathy for characters you get a whole bunch of stuff that you can't get from nonfiction really uh very easily it's really it's very very difficult to do it with nonfiction, um and so and that's and that's something that you know i think is incredibly valuable especially especially as as a creative thinker um you need to have your head kicked sideways and you need to be forced into seeing things from other perspectives and i think it makes me a much kind of wiser smarter better thinker as a result. So I always, for me, it's three nonfiction books, one fiction book, three nonfiction books, one fiction book. And that's, that's how well, I always I will, do it. I will, I will follow that advice given your track record with your books. Uh, so speaking of which, uh, before we get into last tango, what, what in the world prompted your whole interest in peak performance? And, and when did the whole action sports thing begin? Well, I, I tell this story a lot. Um, and uh, so I apologize. Some of your listeners have heard me tell this story before. I will. Um, I, 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 it's funny that you haven't heard it, um, considering how well we know each other at this point. Um, yeah. But uh, I, uh, I became a journalist in the early 1990s, and um, I wasn't. I was never really around other journalists. By the way, I was in San Francisco at this time, but I had never really been around real journalists. I was sort of figuring it out. And the one thing I figured out early on is oh, wow, it's really competitive here and you have to exploit your curiosities. And the things that was deep, one of the things I, I was, I'd always been an action sport athlete. I was a skater. I was a skier. Um, I was a windsurfer and then I became a surfer. So I was deeply interested. I just wasn't very good. But action sports were starting right there. So the X Games was happening, the gravity games. And if you could surf and ride or surf or, you know, ride and rock climb or ride and snowboard or whatever, there was work. And I couldn't do any of those things 
particularly well, but I was desperate for work and I was really curious. And so I basically lied to my editors telling them I was much better than I really was. And I was lucky enough to spend the better portion <laughs> of a decade chasing professional athletes, mostly back then extreme or what became action adventure sport athletes around mountains. And I broke everything because I wasn't a professional athlete. And I'm chasing professional athletes. Yeah. And there was this thing, especially this was such a rowdy, irreverent, punk rock, insane group of people. Like I always say that like my childhood compared to like go to a party with like professional extreme athletes who are in their 20s. Like it, it's you've never seen anything so wild, like because these people have their risk tolerances are so through the roof, you have no idea what, like what goes on in the name of fun. And, you know, I was chasing these guys around mountains. So I broke, you know, I think by the time the grand total right now is like 83 different things between, you know, serious, 83 serious injuries total in my life. And I think 60 or 70 of them happened in that 10 year periods, like 70, I think it was 73. I tried to count recently broken bones and whatever. And that meant I would take a lot of time off. So what would happen is I would snap this or that, and I would have to take four or five months off, you know, three months off or whatever. And then I'd come back and the progress I saw didn't make any sense. It was leaps and bounds kind of stuff. It, it was it like stuff that was absolutely impossible, never been done, never going to be done. Human beings will die if we try to do this. It wasn't just being done. It was being iterated upon. And it, this caught my attention. I was like, oh, my God, these guys are not only doing the impossible, they're doing it on a regular basis. And one thing that caught my attention is I knew these people. These were like punk rock, rowdy, irreverent folks without a lot of natural advantages. They didn't, a lot of them didn't have a ton of education. A lot of them came from really broken homes. A lot of them had almost no money. And yet here they were on a, like a regular basis, extending the bounds of what was possible for our species. So that like one, what the hell am I looking at? What is going on? And it like, it didn't make, even back then, the journalists were covering it. What was changing like year to year or season to season, a rate of change that like sports progression is slow and it's steady and it's not supposed to start going exponential. And that's what was going on. So like, what the hell, where was this coming from? And that, you know, by the time that led me into flow, um, a little, you know, I, I was, I was curious. I was fascinated. I wanted to understand what was going on. And I was curious in every domain. Right. I mean, one of the things about yeah. uh, being a, a journalist, especially in my early years when I was just covering everything, I met everybody. I mean, there was if in the 90s, there was not a rock star, movie star, even a lot of politicians. Like I met all these folks. And as a result, I was around a lot of people who are capable of incredible levels of excellence. I got to see not only up close and personal in action sports, but I saw it in a lot of other industries along the way, technology, um, science, Hollywood, culture, music, all that stuff. So, and I started to, you know, a, I started to realize that the, there was, when you get to the, you know, upper 5%, upper 1%, there were differences, right? You start, you could tell. And mm -hmm. I got like, I got to the point that I was really good at, like I could meet people and I could tell you, I'd have a sense, oh, 10 years from now, they're going to make an amazing, they're going to be able to continue this and they'll make a real contribution. Um, I wasn't bad. I was really good at predicting like, 
also ahead of time, like where the cutting edge and who was full of shit and who was actually doing legit work that was going to change the world. And I had a nose for that. So I saw a lot of that as well. Um, and you know, one thing led to another. And by the time I was like 27, 28 and then sort of discovered flow for the first time was fascinated by that. It all came together. I was like, Oh, this is what these guys are, are harm. These men and women are harnessing to pull this stuff off. Um, this seems a, a commonality and, you know, it sort of exploded from there, shall we say. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch, your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it, you know, I, like I said, I had the good fortune of spending, uh, you know, two days with you and even knowing everything I knew, despite reading your books, I was really honestly just blown away by how much I learned in those two days uh, that had a fundamental improvement and made me completely rethink the way that I even worked. So, you know, it, it, I think this will actually make a, ni- a nice segue to Last Tango. But when you look at creative people, what is it that you were able to see and in, in particularly in creatives that where you could say, okay, you know what, 10 years from now, this person's contribution is going to be significant, or this person is full of shit. Like what was that differentiator? And then right, how do so you, what, how did that yeah, translate so the, to last tango? Okay. So I don't know how to explain So literally the first, the answer to this, I am the most, you know me, I'm a hardcore rational materialist. I like heavy science-based answers, but, but, you and me but I am, so I'm, but I'm about to answer a question in a way that like, there's, I cannot explain it, but this is what I noticed. The people who were, the people who were significant contributors, if you spend time around them, it always felt like they made their own weather. And I can't explain it other than like, so I, one of the, there was a singer songwriter named Jim White, who you probably have not heard of. Um, but there were a lot of singer songwriters in the eighties and the nineties. And he ended up, uh, contributing to a massive amount of culture. There's a couple of movies that have been made about him, um, and his, and, and sort of his impact on the Southern storytelling tradition, blah, blah, blah. He had a huge, ended up having a, an outside impact, uh, especially from where he started. And I remember his songs are all like dark and weird and, and depressing and strange. And I went to interview him and out of nowhere, like Hurricane Earl blows into Florida and suddenly I'm stuck. And her, I mean, like I'm stuck and trapped in Florida with this dude and like, you know, the hurricane and all the way, everything that happened around him. I was like, wait a minute. This is like, I'm in one of his songs. And every time I would go spend time with this dude, stuff that he would sing it about was happening in his life. And you'd leave him and you'd be like, oh my God, that's the weirdest luck ever. And it doesn't sort of it was his yeah. own. And I, I, I know I remember meeting Peter Diamandis for the first time and it was the same thing. Like just, it, 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 it was just like there was a force of will that somehow seemed to alter the universe just in a little, and I got a, you could get a taste for it. Um, what I found that is really difficult. The hardest part about that one was separating that reality from narcissism because uh-huh. it's at a glance, it's really hard to tell them apart. And you have to get a, it really is. And if you're a journalist and you're interested in covering people going after the impossible, you're going to meet a lot of narcissists. And so you have to be Uh able to tell who's just a lying motherfucker from like, who's legit. Um, and that I, that's still a tricky skill set. That's, that's the one that, that was hard, but I, I, it's a weird answer, but that's really, that's sort of my answer. They made their own weather. Yeah. Well, I, I think that social media really fuels this sense of narcissism and, and people appear to be, you know, bigger than they are uh, in many ways. Like they paint the, these pictures of their lives and you kind of are like, okay, well, what's happening in between the status updates and the Instagram uploads? Like what's really happening? Well, it was, the, imagine, imagine those, imagine all that stuff though, like as a journalist, right? Like you would stumble into these stories and sometimes you couldn't tell, am I finding a source because they're the right source or am I finding a source because they want to be found and their ego wants them to be right. And it's really tricky. And like I spent six months once 
on a tr- tracking down this very strange, very weird FBI story. And I was, I was being led into it by a detective with an enormous ego and a track record where you couldn't quite, he was either the most brilliant human being in the world or a liar. And it was a weird line. And here I am tracking down this really incredibly complex. I spent six months uh, in this rabbit hole. And in the end, um, couldn't like just, you can't, you couldn't, his information was always tilted just too much in favor of him to get to the bottom. And I had to walk away from the story. Um, so, so you can lose a lot of time as a journalist down those rabbit holes. Uh huh. Well, speaking of rabbit holes, I mean, we we're talking about non or fiction being sort of a rabbit hole, and I think that was one of those things where I had to read. You know, I thought we were going to talk next week, so I was trying to read as quickly as possible just to get a sense for what was happening in this book. Uh, so, how much of, of what went into Last Tango was shaped by what you've gotten to see, you know, by being up close to Peter and the things that are happening around that? Because, I mean, even your descriptions of, of the jobs that people had and, and sort of the world that we live in was really kind of, it was like, whoa, this is where we're headed? Like, some of this is weird as shit. Yeah, so here's the truth of the matter. Yeah. I think I wrote the book for two reasons, but one of them was... I had been writing a lot of books about disruptive technology, right? I Abundance, Bold, um, Tomorrowland, Stealing Fire on a Certain Level is a little bit about technology. Um, and then I was already researching this new book with, with Peter. Um, and in all of these books, I have had to, because the book's got to make sense, right? You got to tell the story essentially one technology at a time, one innovation at a time. But that's not the future. And a lot of people kept saying, Stephen, hey, what's the future? What, what does it look like? Blah. And I never made any predictions, um, but the questions stayed with me really deeply. And I kept saying, you know, and I was like, you know what? What is the future? Because it's not one technology at a time, one innovation at a time. It's all these things at once. So literally every single thing in the book, with two exceptions, is true, meaning it exists in reality. It's either in a lab somewhere or it's already out in the world, just not evenly distributed. So it's in other countries and we don't get a chance to see it. Um, so everything in the book is uh-huh. real and everything in the book, you have to understand that the current rate of technological acceleration puts us on course to experience essentially a hundred years worth of change over the next 10 years, hundred years worth of technological change. So think back, right, to the world where it was in 1917 and then t- re- or 1919, excuse me, and whirl that up to 2019, think about that much change and then go, oh, wow, that's going to happen in the next 10 years because of exponentially accelerating technology and these growth curves and holy crap. So five years from now, which is when the book is set five, six years from now, um, you're still looking at about 30 years worth of technological change at, at, uh-huh. a, at a scale that we are used to. So it's an incredible amount of change so, cracked into a small period of time. You were going to say? Yeah. So paint a picture of that future for us. Well, you, I mean, you, you just have to understand that like things like, for example, like uh, augmented reality. Augmented reality is going to start you know, hitting the world hard this year. Same thing with virtual reality, but uh, augmented is, it's, they're building an information layer between where we are now and regular reality. Like you're going to walk down the street in New York, you're going to be able to put on your smart glasses and it's everything from the building's history, you know, 
or, you know, to a custom design tour guide of this city to, you know, things that pop out at you. If you're hungry and your favorite food is Chinese food, suddenly all the Chinese food restaurants are going to start glowing on the street kind of thing is that level of personalization. Um, it's, you know, that's coming in the next year or two. So this is an entire new layer of reality that doesn't exist that's going to start showing up in the next year or two is just one example of things that are changing. Artificial intelligence is sort of the biggest yeah. example. I don't, you know, I, I, you know, autonomous cars are rolling out on our streets um, this year. Every major car company has an autonomous division, this autonomous taxis, autonomous Ubers. We're going to have flying cars. The first flying cars are slated to hit streets by 2023. Um, blockchain is getting woven through pretty much of all of our major utilities, um, things along those lines. Yeah. These are all changing really, really rapidly. Yeah. I think the thing that, the, that struck me most was just the, how this fundamentally shifts human dynamics and human interaction. Uh, when I was going through the book, I was like, whoa, these are very strange things that we, we, you know, like somebody has a job you know, called an empathy tracker, which I thought was the strangest thing. So explain to me how um, all of this is going to impact human relationships, because I think that to me is really kind of, we've seen sort of the dark side of, of how this is affecting us when it comes to social media, right? Where we're connected yet isolated and you have all sorts of problems that have arisen from this. You know, as somebody who studies flow, you know that it's just caused all sorts of attention problems. I mean, you and I were talking about the fact that you're on Facebook like once a month. And my thought was, well, Stephen Kotler, New York Times bestselling author, I was on Facebook once a month. I think I'm, I'm good with not spending any time on it. Uh, so explain to me how that how this is going to shape human behavior and human relationships. Well, that's, I mean, that's even where the title comes from, right? Last Tango in Cyberspace, in a sense, is the end of something new. And the new that I'm talking about is the feeling. What we don't realize is that, that, that the world, life, has, it feels a particular way based on a lot of subconscious stuff that we don't pay attention to, including the technology we're surrounded by. And, and I'll give you the example mm -hmm. I always like to give, and we sort of started here, is if you are old enough to have watched the internet emerge, there was a, there was a period between like 90, 1993, 94. And I, I, I helped start BuzzNet, which was one of the first online magazines. So I was, I was in San Francisco. I was working on some stuff for this right at the beginning. Um, so I was familiar with it, but in a two year period, you went from like being fairly isolated in the world to being connected to the world. And the mind space, the way the world felt, the opportunities, the possibilities, everything massively expanded and reality felt different. And it had, it didn't feel that way before. And suddenly it felt different. And my point is the way the world feels to us, the way reality actually feels is going to radically change. Now, the interesting question you raised is one of the things, are we going to get more lonely, more isolated? more separated or are we going to come together in interesting ways and i think there are arguments that say that technology the isolating aspects of technology are going to start to diminish and so one thing that's all the way through last tango is emotional computing uh -huh. but emotional computing is everywhere right now and even built into you know this is in the uh this is in the book as well lidar sensors that are sitting on top of autonomous vehicles gather about 1.5 million data points per second, but about 
100, 120 of those data points that it's looking for is human expression, human emotion. And the reason is, if you're an autonomous taxi and you're driving down the road and there's a pedestrian 100 yards down the road and you need to know, are they going to jump into traffic? If they're angry versus they're calm, well, angry means their probability of jumping into traffic is even higher, right? So these cars, and we've had, you know, Computers can read human emotion and stealing fire. I wrote about Ellie, the first artificial intelligence psychologist yeah. built up by the Defense Department to help identify early warning signs of PTSD in soldiers. And, you know, that was five years ago. And Ellie could already, you know, she was diagnosing PT, early warning signs of PTSD and depression, I think at 80, 81% accuracy, better than psychologists and social workers. And this was five years ago. Right. So that capability is being built into everything, you know, right now, um, which is interesting. So our computers, right, our AIs, our robots are getting more emotionally intelligent at the same time that we're entering, we're moving into a VR world that is going to come complete with haptics and avatars and a lot of things that make us, you know, really feel present in these worlds. Um, and you're, you know, you can now sort of feel touch in these worlds. David Eagleman, Stanford neuroscientist, good friend of mine, um, has built a device that turns sound into touch. And he's building it, you know, it's, it's sort of like a kinder, gentler cochlear implant for the deaf. And, um, but it, you know, it's being also used by Philip Rosedale inside of, uh, Philip Rosedale built Second Life, the first virtual world, and yeah. he's got a new one called High Fidelity. And David Eagleman built a, a haptic vest. So you go into, and this is just right now, you go into VR world, it's raining in VR, you feel the raindrops on the vest, right? That's where we are right now. Uh -huh. There's an entire field. I mean, the field of dildonics, which is exactly what you would think it is, um, it sounds exactly like what it is, um, has been around since the 80s. And, you know, sex and porn has driven every technology forward, and this VR is going to be no different. But so what you're going to get yeah. out of this is ways to transmit very intimate sensations through the wow. internet, right? Like that's what's coming. And I mean, through virtual reality, that's, this is not, this is in the next five years, this stuff is here. So will it make us more lonely? Yeah. Will it bring us together? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that it's going to change the way reality feels. And it's wow. going to change us at a really deep and fundamental level. And one of the reasons I can say this with confidence is I'm a different dude today than I was before the internet, right? If uh -huh. you have the kind of, you know, if you're an, an, an ambitious motherfucker <laughs> like me, yeah. and suddenly a technology like the internet comes along and you're like, oh my God, I can communicate with the world. Things start to shift, yeah. right? And there's a whole generation right now of people who are like me, who are much younger than me, who are coming up right now. And they're like, oh my God, I want to, I might want to really want to dent the universe. And suddenly I can speak to people at a level of kind of connection and transmission of feeling. I mean, think about the art and the creativity and what's going to be possible when we start to be able to send experiences in a uh -huh. sense. Wow. Um, it, 
you know, so that's interesting. Yeah. You, it's funny you say that because like, I, I am very much like none of what I do would have been possible 10 years ago. So much so that I was written off as the lazy, unmotivated employee. And you know, like I was like, Oh, giving, being given these tools is like letting a kid in a candy store. Like, I think that it's like, but I, I've jokingly said that, you know, like if somebody came back from like 1990s and they're like, okay, you looked at what the billions of people have chosen to do. They might assume that we're in a state of idiocracy. It's like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You watch people live their lives online. You, you know, publicly share every pointless detail of your life. And this is considered a good use of time. Uh, yeah, like you I know, always it's say, it's funny. like you know, I, 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 I always tell people, magazines were the internet before the internet. Yeah, they right. So, and the '90s saw this because the t- means of production went because of Apple more than anything else. Suddenly, went wide. Right. So the '90s people were like people. Punk rock entrepreneurs, my friends, <laughs> were starting magazines right and left. And these were glossy, high production. There was money. And so, like, the whole thing that happened happened with first with the internet and websites and blogs and now with podcasters. Like, I watched the first version was magazines. Um, yeah. And it happened in the 90s um, uh, a little earlier on. And that was the wave I sort of rode, rose to prominence in a sense. Um, and so absolutely, I saw firsthand and I owe my entire career to kind of the democratization of weird means of production. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> this has just been really, really fascinating uh, and, and wild in, in ways that like, it, you know, you're talking about virtual reality, actually. And I remember I took Peter's uh, singularity course because he had a version of it that was available online. And I remember him describing what virtual reality would look like in the future. And the thing that I never forgot that he said is, so think about it right now. He said, you have screen resolution on televisions, as I think at like, we're almost at 6K, but he said the human eye processes images at 8K. And he said, what will happen at that point is that when screen resolution and the human eye are processing images at the same resolution, he said, then you're basically going to be in virtual reality and you actually won't be able to tell because the brain can't distinguish between, is this person real or is this a projection? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And one of the technologies we're writing about, this is, I mean, you want to talk about mind blowing. And this isn't even in the, this isn't in last tango because it's not going to happen until 2030. But the holodeck from Star Trek is being uh-huh. built right now. And I mean, not like this is not fantasy. Like some of the biggest guys in Hollywood, um, are, doing it and they've already got holographic projectors that can be scaled up they believe by 2030 um in at like disney worlds and starting to be in the homes of the really wealthy and then starting to go wide right you're going to get holodeck experiences and they're using this is crazy but they're using ultrasound to give objects heft so it turns out you can use ultrasound waves to make, it doesn't really like, you're going to pick up a, a banana on your holodeck and it's not going to feel like a banana, but it's going to feel like something. It's going to be an object that you can interact with, even though it's virtual and it's going to feel like something and they're, and they're using ultrasound for that. That's, I mean, okay, um, by 2030, I can create, you know, Westworld. <laughs> I mean, like what? Yeah. Wow. 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 This is, uh, this has been really, really amazing and, and thought provoking and, uh, makes me want to go back and reread the book a second time. Cause I think I read it a bit too fast just to, to prep for our conversation. 
one, of course, final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I don't know, man. I like, I, I always say this, right. I, I, I think ultimately when you come right down to it, there's really just like how hard you work and how big is your vision. And I think, you know what I mean? I like that. That's sort of the, the only point I have. So the, like, it's the intersection of those two things. Yeah. I think nobody, I, I don't, I, I think it's impossible to understand the level, how hard, unmistakable people actually work like how unbelievably they do you know how much energy actually goes in and um two they're you know they don't have the same breaks on reality that a lot of people have so their vision is really really big Uh, and those two uh, things together are pretty hard to stop i think that's what makes somebody unmistakable awesome where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the new book, and everything else that you're up to? Last Tango in Cyberspace, Amazon.com is where you go for that bad boy. Um, and uh, StephenCotler.com is where you go for everything else. Um, and one thing I want to, I've been trying to tell this to people because it's buried and I haven't managed to change it yet. But if you go, uh, if you go to the word section on the website, um, the video tab is hidden under there. There's probably 10 hours of free content there. Um, almost everything we've talked about a little bit, there's probably videos there. And there's also the rabbit hole. It's literally called the rabbit hole. It's a tab. And so if you want to learn more about exponential technology, go down the exponential technology rabbit hole. If you want to learn more about flow, go down the flow rabbit hole. Everything's sort of like curated for fun learning. So there's just hours and hours and hours of like interesting fun hidden on that website. So I've decided I'm going to start talking about it. So people actually go notice it because nobody goes to websites anymore. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.